For today's video, we discuss yet another situation in which a court found that the government failed to raise certain arguments, but it's no big deal. The defendant loses anyway. Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Civil Law, where we learn through the misfortunes of others. As always, I hope you'll enjoy this legal education content, and today will be the day I earn your subscription. But first, a huge shout out to this video's supporter, Aura. Aura is a company that can help you with identity theft protection and credit monitoring. When your personal information leaks online, you're at a higher risk of credit card fraud or identity theft, which means that your money and your reputation could be at risk right now. Aura scans the dark web looking for these threats and alerts you if it finds anything. With an easy to use online dashboard and alerts that are sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. So how can you protect yourself? Well, go to aura.com slash uncivil law to protect yourself from hackers, scammers, and nosy advertising companies, among other threats. When you use my link below, r.com slash uncivil law, you'll get up to 40% off on all plans, plus a money back guarantee for new subscribers if you're not fully satisfied, which I believe you will be. r.com slash uncivil law to help protect you against the growing threats of credit card fraud and identity theft protection in this increasing digital age. Recently on this channel, we covered a situation from the Eighth Circuit, in which the government failed to make certain arguments at the trial. They failed to make issues about standing at trial. But the Court of Appeals said it's okay because you didn't forfeit those issues and you brought it up in your appeal brief. Okay, what if you don't bring it up in your appeal brief? Well, then the Eleventh Circuit's got you covered. That's the United case of United States of America versus Eric Men Menko Campbell, where the government forgot to bring up an issue in appeal, but you know, the government's got their back and the conviction will stand. So let's get started with this. On the cool night of December the 12th, 2013, Greene County Deputy Sheriff Robert McCannon was patrolling Interstate 20 in Georgia. At around 9 p.m. that evening, McCannon saw a gray Nissan Maxima cross the line for the highway that separates the roadway for the shoulder. So McCann activated the camera on his dashboard and began following the car. After observing this a second time and noticing that his blinker looked unusually quick, he pulled the car over. After determining that the left turn signal was malfunctioning, McCannon decided to issue Campbell a warning, but not a full-on ticket, for failing to comply with two Georgia traffic regulations, failing to maintain signal lights in good working condition, and failure to stay within the driving lane. All right, so we have a standard roadside stop for crossing traffic and the blinker looks a little weird. And sometimes blinkers act weird because of voltage issues or because of because the light is out. So there can be a reason for that, right? So it's a perfectly reasonable traffic stop. It's like your blinker is weird. So maybe you have a light bulb out somewhere or you have a voltage problem and it's, it's a problem. And also you cross the roadway. So we've got a, a traffic stop where we've pulled this guy over for some stuff. Okay, let's read some more. As he wrote up the warning, McCannon requested that dispatch run a check on Campbell's license. At the same time, he struck up a conversation with Campbell. He learned where Campbell worked, that Campbell was en route to Augusta to see his family, that Campbell had been arrested 16 years ago for DUI, don't talk to the police, and that Campbell was not traveling with a firearm. Then McCannon asked Campbell if he had any counterfeit CDs or DVDs, illegal alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, ecstasy, or dead bodies in his car. 
That escalated real fast. The second set of questions took about 25 seconds, and Campbell either shook his head or answered no in response to each inquiry. At that point, McCann asked Campbell if he could search the car for any of those items, and Campbell said yes. Don't say yes to the police. While McCannon was writing the warning, Sergeant Patrick Paquette, who had arrived on the scene a few minutes earlier, began searching the car. McCannon then finished writing up the citation, had Campbell sign it, and joined Paquette in the search. The officers found a 9mm semi-automatic pistol, 9mm ammo, a black stocking cap, and a camouflage face mask in a bag hidden under the, under the carpet in the Maxima trunk. Once confronted about the contents of the truck, Campbell admitted that he lied about not traveling with a firearm because he was a convicted felon, so he was arrested. Okay, so many things have gone wrong, and at this point, I'd like to quote the Pop Brothers, Pop Brothers at Law. Shut the F up. Shut the F up. If the, if the police pull you over and they ask, start asking you questions, the Pop Brothers recommend, and I can't think of anything better, I don't want to discuss my day. Just say that. I don't want to discuss my day. Where are you going? I don't want to discuss my day. Where, what's in the car? I don't want to discuss my day. Now, that's a good response. I like that response. Don't, and, they just, and they say, you don't want to discuss your day? I say, no. What's in the car? I don't want to discuss my day. Don't say yes. Shut the F up. This message brought to you by Prop Brothers at Law and endorsed by Uncivil Law. Let's press on. At trial, Campbell contended that the seizure was unreasonable because McCannon lacked reasonable suspicion to believe a traffic violation had occurred. That, that, that doesn't work. It, it, no. But even if there was reasonable suspicion, Campbell argued the seizure was never less unconstitutional because McCannon prolonged the stop by asking questions unrelated to the purpose of the stop. Okay, this is a little bit more promising. Specifically, he challenged questions on the following topics. McCannon asked where Campbell was going, who he was going to see, where he worked, if he had time off work when his last traffic ticket was, if he'd ever been arrested, how old the car was, how good of a deal he got on his car, whether he had counterfeit, counterfeit merchandise or if he had a dead body in the car. One of these things is kind of not like the other, but yeah. From the time McCannon began writing the warning ticket to Campbell's consent to the search, a total of six minutes and seven seconds elapsed. Campbell consented eight minutes and 57 seconds after Campbell made the stop and unrelated questions of which Campbell complains lasted approximately 25 seconds. So the question is, are these unrelated questions 25 seconds too much? Okay. The district court then turned to the prolonged issue. Is the prolonged interrogation okay? On this point, the court found that McKinnon wasn't held to ask Campbell about the destination and purpose of his trip. Entitled to ask doesn't mean that you're required to answer, by the way. The year the car was made, the last traffic citation he received, his criminal history, and whether he's traveling with a firearm. But questions about contraband, the court said, were unrelated to the purpose of the stop. These questions about contraband merchandise, drugs, and dead bodies, and Campbell's responses consumed all of 25 seconds. Immediately following these questions, Campbell consented to the search, which would then stop the clock because he's consenting to the prolonged interview at that time, right? If you say, if they say, can I search? And you say, yes, please. You're now consenting to the time for the search. The court found that these few seconds McCann took to ask unrelated questions did not transform the stop into an unreasonably prolonged seizure, which is a potentially reasonable conclusion, right? So the court found that some of these questions are proper for the purposes of the stop. Some of them are not. The improper questions comprise 25 seconds. Is that enough to, to unconstitutionally prolong the stop? The district court says no, which might be a reasonable conclusion, but let's read on. 
Campbell appealed and argued his traffic stop was unlawful at its interception and unlawfully prolonged under Rodriguez. Rodriguez was the case dealing with drug dogs. The cops didn't have a drug dog on them. They radioed for a drug dog. The drug dog came and found drugs. The Supreme Court said, yeah, you can't do that. You can't prolong the stop. If you happen to have a drug dog on you, then fine, but you can't prolong the stop. So he's trying to use that logic of you can't prolong the stop by saying these 25 seconds worth of questions were improper under the logic of Rodriguez. And we've seen some courts accept that as a matter of state law, although I don't believe any federal court has accepted that yet. Continuing on, after oral argument, a panel of this court affirmed denial of the motion to suppress. But we withheld the mandate, and the panel sua sponte issued a revised opinion, once again support affirming. In both opinions, the panel considered the application of a good faith exception, which was fully briefed to the district court, despite the failure of the government to raise it on appeal. All right, so one of the issues going on here is good faith, right? Assuming that this is a constitutional violation, one of the things that the police can do is say it's a good faith violation. You know, that they were acting in good faith because this is like the equivalent of there's no case law on point. So we weren't defying the law. And that can work. Now, they raised that issue in the district court, but they didn't raise that issue in the court of appeals. They didn't raise the issue of good faith. Before the en banc court, Campbell argues the government did not invoke the good faith exception in its brief to the panel. So that defense is waived and should not be considered. That, and that even if we do consider the good faith exception, it should only apply when bright line rule specifically authorizes an officer conduct. We disagree with him on both parties parts. As we'll discuss below, we may exercise our discretion to consider good faith exception despite the government's failure to brief the exception to the panel. And we choose to do so based on the important policy reasons underlying the good faith exception and the circumstances of the case. So normally, if you don't use it, you lose it. The government didn't raise the issue of good faith in its appeal brief. So it should lose that issue. But the Court of Appeals is going to consider it anyway, even though they lost the issue. So, okay. Typically, issues not raised in appeal briefs are deemed abandoned. Yeah. Describing issues not raised in the initial brief as abandoned has a long history in the court. Our very first case in the 11th Circuit considered a footnote describing several of appellants' claim as abandoned on appeal. However, our case law has been less than clear about whether an issue abandoned on appeal has been waived or merely forfeited a problem that's all the more troubled by the way jurists sometimes use this language interchangeably. So this will sound very, very familiar because we just covered a case just like this where this issue was at the district court. And now we're having the same issue in the Court of Appeals in a different case. There is abandoned, but what kind of abandoned? Do we mean, do we mean forfeited or do we mean waived abandoned? Under the party presentation principle, American courts function as an adversarial system of adjudication, whereby we rely on parties to frame the issues for decision and assign their courts to the role of neutral arbiter of matters of parties present. Our system is designed around the premise that the parties know what is best for them and are responsible for advocating the facts and arguments entitling them to relief. Accordingly, it is inappropriate for the court to raise issues sua sponte in most situations. However, the party presentation principle is supple, not ironclad, and there are no doubt circumstances in which a modest initiating role for the court is appropriate. Although jurists often use the words interchangeably, forfeiture is failure to make timely assertion of a right, waiver is intentional relinquishment of the abandonment of a known right. We've discussed that recently as well, so same logic. 
Federal courts do not have carte blanche to depart from the principles of party presentation basic to our adversary system it is an abuse of court of discretion for a court to override a party's deliberate waiver. In contrast, courts do have the ability to resurrect forfeited issues sua sponte in extraordinary circumstances. This is because refusal to consider arguments not raised is sound prudential practice, but rather than a statutory or constitutional mandate, and there are times where prudence dictates the contrary. So the government wins, even though it failed to raise the argument. I, 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 I do not think this would have worked the other way around. So that's part of my problem here is like, I don't, I don't really, I don't remember the last time a court of appeals said to a defendant, hey, you waived that issue, but we're going to consider it anyway. Uh, yeah. Consequently, we've identified five situations in which we may exercise our discretion to consider forfeiture. The issue involves a pure question of law and refusal to consider it would result in a miscarriage of justice. The party lacked opportunity to raise the issue at the district court level. Well, that's not true. They, they did. The interest of substantial justice is at stake. The proper resolution is beyond any doubt. Or the issues present significant questions of general impact or of great public concern. To clarify our case law, we hold that mere failure to raise an issue in an initial brief on direct appeal should be treated as forfeiture of the issue, and therefore the issue may be raised by the court sua sponte in extraordinary circumstances after finding that one of our prior case forfeiture exception applies. This clarification should not be taken as weakening or abandonment rule. Oh, really? I want to see a defendant rely on this decision and see how well that would work out. Abandonment still incurs heavy penalties, even when treated as forfeiture. After all, a party loses the right to demand consideration of an abandonment issue. But if you don't give it to defendants, there's an equal protection problem. The government failed to brief the good face exception on appeal. Accordingly, the exception is forfeited. However, before turning to our forfeiture exceptions, we pause to address the dissent's contention the government conceded it waived the good faith exception at en banc argument. Turning to the forfeiture exceptions, we conclude the fourth exception, where proper resolution of the issue is beyond any doubt applies here. This case is also extraordinary as it is a good faith exception case in which there are no material factual disputes. Accordingly, the question of whether the good faith exception applies has come to be a pure question of law in which the policy considerations behind the exclusionary rule lie starkly before us. And just as the trial courts are particularly well-suited to making findings of fact, appellate courts are particularly well-suited to answering questions of law. We may not consider issues intentionally waived by the parties, and we should not consider forfeited, forfeited issues except in extraordinary circumstances. This is one such extraordinary circumstances. I'm not quite sure how them dropping the ball is extraordinary, but okay. For reasons expressed above, we choose to exercise our discretion to excuse the government's forfeiture and address the good faith exception. Thus, that brings us to the end of the case of United States of America versus Erickson Mecco Campbell. In this case, the United States government failed to bring issues on appeal. And the 11th Circuit, like the 6th Circuit before us, said, you know, no big deal. We'll just apply those anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I don't see this working the other way around. But the government got a break for some reason, even though, you know, you'd be very hard-pressed indeed to get this break as a defendant. But for some reason, they're giving it to the government. I don't know. But at least for the moment, that brings us to the end of consideration of this case. Thank you so much for being part of the Uncivil Law family. If you enjoyed this legal education content, please hit the subscribe button. It really helps the channel grow. We appreciate your continuing support. Until later, my friends, cheers and goodbye.